was able to overcome seven human beings all by himself. And he says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And that's the devil speaking to these men. I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but who are you? Does the devil know who you are? Are you enough of a witness for him that he knows who you are? And, he's, and he wants to sift you like he wanted to sift Peter like wheat? Well, maybe you're a closet Christian and he's not going to bother you then. And, then. and you say, well, he's not bothering me. Well, that's because nobody knows who you are. Right? We're here for spiritual warfare. We've got armor. We've been instructed to put on. And, and to live in the basis of that, and to realize it, and, and to act like the disciples, like some of you brethren were expressing in prayer, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. See, we live in this very comfortable culture that everything's got to be cushioned and soft and easy for us, and, and we forget that the early disciples rejoiced in suffering for the name, and so should we. Okay, we want to come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as we often like to do when I'm preaching with you, these are consecutive studies, so they build on one another. So I don't generally go back and rehearse things that we covered like last night. We want to build on that. So some of you maybe, I think it, it was taped, right, brother? I think it was taped. And, and so hopefully if you want to see what some of the things that I'm building from tonight and listen to it, it that tape is is available to you but tonight too we will not be a, it won't be a verse by verse study as much because there are a few topical issues that came up last night that it, last night became a topical study too and maybe that was the way the Lord wanted it to go but that isn't the way I intended it for it to go but, but that's the way it went and and so there's some things that came up that I think are important and the elders want readdressed tonight and I think and for good reason but let's read the passage Anyway, uh, because we'll, we'll come back to this portion, Lord willing, tomorrow night at Brother John's house. So chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Thessalonians. Now, brethren, concerning the coming, and we used the word parousia last night, and that's the word really we want to have in our mind because the word English word coming is, is not as, there isn't an English word to translate Parousia, it takes a couple of English words, so that's why they translated it that way. But the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that is, the day of Christ, will not come unless the falling away, the apostasy, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the ultimate progeny of Adam's sin, a man who is projecting himself as God. And for a time being, God lets him do it. Okay? 
Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So here's an insight that this is what Paul was teaching. He was only there a few weeks. And, and he believed eschatology and the return of our Lord was part of the core curricula. It wasn't something that, well, lower tier. <laughs> That's what uh, Brother Ducanus was telling me we were discussing last night after. He said, when these brethren talk about third tier, third tier doctrinal issues, and, and the megachurches only want to stay on the first tier. They don't want to go to the second and third tier because it upsets people. So they, they put these things on. Th well, the Bible, Paul didn't do that. So he gave him the whole counsel of God, right? Acts chapter 20. There wasn't a priority of this doctrine and this one, and then this one's a lower, and we don't discuss this one and all of that. Man's developed that. So he says, and now you know what is restraining. <laughs> well, we weren't in those meetings he was having, so we're having to put it together with what Paul has given us and other portions of Scripture. But you know what is restraining that he may be revealed, he being that man of sin he mentioned earlier, may be revealed, here's revealed again the second time, I was telling Malcolm about that last night, in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, even in Paul's day. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, and you may want to highlight that word then in your Bible, the lawless one, this is the same individual that's projecting himself to be God in the temple of God, will be, Malcolm, there's the third time, revealed. Okay, so last night we weren't able to get to either the second or third revealed because we got stopped on the first revealed and we lost the flow of the thought, see? And we went on all these diversions and that's what caused, and we didn't follow the flow of thought and that's what causes diversion, see? That's what causes false doctrine. So here he's explaining the revealed he uses the first time, isn't he? This is, these are different ways of looking at this lawless one, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his parousia, his coming. Second time that word is used in this section so far, right? Verse 1 and here. And then notice the next verse. The parousia of the lawless one. There's a third one. So there's a parousia of the Lord, and there's a parousia of the Antichrist. There are two parousias going on here. We didn't get to that last night either. And this parousia of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's doing miracles, real ones, not fake ones, real miracles. But he's not a Christian, <laughs> not a follower of God. And with all unrighteous deception among what type of people? Those who perish. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They didn't love the truth of the gospel when they had opportunity to respond to it. So they're going to be deceived and God's going to see to it that they are by these lying wonders in unrighteous deception. There are consequences to hardness of heart, see? There are consequences to obstinacy. 
toward God. And for this reason, God will send them. You notice that? That's sobering. Who's the one doing the sending here? Well, who's the one responsible for the power, signs, and lying wonders in verse 9? Satan. The workings of Satan. The energies. We get our word energy from energeia. The energeia of Satan. The workings of Satan. But for this reason, God's going to send a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And there's some different discussion about what that the lie is, and maybe we'll get to that tomorrow night. We'll see, right, Brother John? That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do we live in a world today where people have pleasure in unrighteousness? All your neighbors. <laughs> all of my neighbors. Okay, well, that's, that's the passage. It, the subject changes a little bit at verse 13. But we want to look at a couple of things that appear early on in this passage in the first few verses that we referred to a little bit last night. Now, one of the things I wanted to make sure I cover, so let me cover it right at the beginning. There was the idea put forward that the pre-tribulation rapture, which happens to be part of the doctrinal statement of this church, just read you back your bulletin, that the pre-tribulation rapture uh, was not taught until 1800 or in the 1800s. That it was a new idea that came up in the 1800s. Well, beloved, that is totally false. Let me make sure and make it, it is false. It is a lie. It's not true. Don't believe it. And if you're interested in researching it, John Wolverd, Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, in their books on the rapture question, have all given quotations from the anti-Nicene fathers. Now, the anti-Nicene fathers are those who lived before the Nicene Creed, which was under Constantine in 324 and 325 A.D., right? So the first couple of hundred years of the church after the apostles, the last apostle died, John, probably roughly 100 A.D., so from 100 A.D. to 324, that would be when we, we have some preserved writings from those who were... Bible teachers, elders, so forth, in the early church. We have some. We don't have much. And there were those that held, and my understanding is the majority of them held to a pre-tribulation rapture and an imminent return of Christ. Okay? So it wasn't developed in the 1800s, and that's what we would call a straw man argument. If you've ever been in debating circles or in, in a courtroom there are certain things that we call logical fallacies that are used to divert away from the truth. You know, non sequiturs, overgeneralization, oversimplification, different techniques that are used. Well, the straw man argument is to, if you want to shoot down an idea, you misrepresent it with something it isn't and then say, and see how ridiculous it is? It's a straw man. Of course you're going to blow it down because it's a misrepresentation, see? Yeah, the, the early brethren writers, John Darby and those in 1830 and following, did a lot of writing with regard to the pre-tribulation rapture, but they're not the authors of it. But there are books on the market that will tell you that. I've read them. I know that. I've seen it myself. And it's a misrepresentation. And, and it's an unfortunate thing because it's from people who claim to be Christians. And Christians ought not to be doing that, right? So that's one thing I want to make clear, too. 
Another thing, and it's an important question that one of our beloved young people brought up, and I'm so glad you young people are thinking about these things. And the question is, what's the diff? Right? What's the big deal? I mean, why do we need to worry about whether the rapture is pre-tribulation, post-tribulation? You know, we got people we need to get saved. You know, what, what's the big deal here? Is it important? Well, my answer would be threefold on that. It would go this way. The first would be proclamation. The second would be perspective. And the third would be purity. In the first one, and I, I really hope you'll look at these verses with me because I'm going to move around a lot of different verses tonight. But in 2 Timothy 2.15, which if you've ever been connected to the Awana program, you already know this verse. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Awana, right? A-W-A-N-A. <laughs> 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Why would they be ashamed? Because they didn't rightly handle the word of truth. That's why they'd be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. He's, he's telling Timothy, don't be like that. Don't be having be in a situation at the judgment seat of Christ that you mishandled and misrepresented. What does he say? Just the gospel? Just the four gospels? Just the book of Acts and the gospel? Just the historical books? The word of truth, Genesis to Revelation, the whole counsel of God. God forbid that we would ever put a hierarchy on his word and his truth. Amen? It's all important. It's the word of God. It's the mind of God. It's the thinking of God. It's the heart of God. And it's all important. And it's all important that we handle it, all of it, correctly. Because of whose it is. So I'm calling that proclamation. And especially in light of the apostasy that, while well, you're there in 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 3 in verse 1. There was already these, that false teaching in verse 18 of chapter 2. And, and I, Brother Andreas is here, and I appreciate it. And I gave you credit for it last night, too, Brother Andreas. That was so significant, our young people thinking the word of God out. And he and I were visiting there on uh, Monday night before soccer. And he brought, he says, what about O Hymenaeus and Philetus? In 2 Timothy 2, he said, were they preterists? And I said, boy, that's great, Andreas. Yeah. Here we have some preterists, right, in Paul's day. It was what we call an early incipient form of preterism. It really was developed after 70 A.D., and this is 50, well, this is when 2 Timothy, we're at 66 A.D. or so, so just a few years before. But what are they saying? What are they teaching? The resurrection's already passed. The resurrection is already passed, which means that when you were born again, that is the resurrection. And you're already in the kingdom. And this is all there is. And there's no rapture you need to worry about. And there's no kingdom glory you need to worry about. And yeah, there's a second coming. And, you know, but there are huge sections of scripture are just put on the shelf or spiritualized or allegorized. Now, is that accurately handling the word of truth, beloved? Can you say in all honesty you'd be at peace before the face of your Savior looking into his eyes and be at peace about that? I wouldn't. I can tell you right now. I'd be ashamed of myself. I'd be ashamed. I hope you would too. I hope you feel that way. That's the first thing. The second reason 
is the perspective. We mentioned this last night. John 14, the Lord tells the apostles and Peter when they're worried about his departure, he says, I'm going to come and receive you to myself, right? That where I am, you may be also. Well, where is he now? Is he on earth or is he in heaven? He's in heaven. So if he's going to receive us to himself, where are we going to need to be? In heaven, where he is. He's going to receive us to himself. That's what he tells me. That's in John 14, 1 through 3, my life verses. And so, as a disciple of the Lord, I'm looking for his appearing. I'm looking for his coming for me, as he promised in John 14. I've been looking for that for 30 years, since 1982, when I was saved. But if I didn't think the Lord was coming before the tribulation period, I'd be looking for the Antichrist. And my whole perspective would change. And I would be focused on this world instead of on the heavenly. Like Paul tells the Colossians, right? Have your mind set on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Right? But I'd be focused on the things of the earth, and I'd be stockpiling food, water, ammo, guns, bombs, whatever you had to have to protect yourself from him. Because he's going to have a Gestapo like you never saw before looking for you if you're a Christian. And he's not going to just read a poem to you he's going to kill you according to revelation 20 right those who had the testimony of jesus had been beheaded and that's coming back in vogue again already in our day so that whole idea and of course along with john 14 1 through 3 second timothy 4 i charge you verse 1 his appearing and his kingdom paul deals with the appearing verses 1 through 8 he deals with the kingdom in the next section that's another study in itself, but they certainly appear in chapter 4 of Second Timothy to be two distinct different things. Some would argue they're the same. But his appearing, Paul's looking for the kingdom later. And then, of course, Ezekiel 33, the watchman on the wall. When the watchman sees danger coming and doesn't announce it, what does God say to him? He says, the blood of the people that I wanted you to warn is on your head. Because you stayed quiet and didn't warn them. But if you turn and you announce that the danger is coming and they don't listen to you and don't respond, their blood's on their head. You're clear of your responsibility because you warned them. And that's all I asked you to do. That's what the watchman on the wall does. Ezekiel 33. Well, why would you do that if you knew that the Antichrist was going to come first? Then you could say, well, I'll wait until... This, this sixth and three-quarter year of the seven-year period, because we know it's going to be a seven-year period, that the Antichrist is going to reign from the Bible. We know that. The 70th week of Daniel, right? So I'd wait till the sixth and three-quarter year and then start announcing right before he comes back. But that's not what the Lord says to do. Thirdly, purity. First John 3, 3, right? Everyone who has this hope in him of what? Of the coming of the Antichrist? The piracy of the Antichrist? Is that what he's teaching? No, the coming of the Lord. Everyone who has that hope in him does what? Purifies himself just as he is pure. And there's nothing more purifying than a belief in the imminent return of Christ before the tribulation begins, which is what this chapel holds to. And I believe it's biblical. 
You say, well, I'm not willing to die for that. Well, what are you willing to die for for the scriptures then? How much of it, you think only part of it's truth? You just die for the gospel and that's it? I, I hope we come to the place where we're willing to die for the truth and be steadfast in the whole counsel of God. I know not all of you are there yet. We're all a work in progress. I'm not sure I'm there yet. But I hope I'll be there if the need comes to take a stand for the truth. That's what Paul's urging Timothy to do, right? Okay, so those were a couple of things that came up last night. I think, what's the difference? It, it makes a lot of difference. It makes a lot of difference. And there are a lot more things we could go into. I could spend a whole week on that. Another item that came up last night is the issue that the, the day of Christ. Do you remember we saw that in verse 2 of, first, of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? And the question was asked, well, is there every other, any other reference to the day of Christ in the New Testament? And yes, there is. So let's look at a few of them. And let, if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, the first one I'd like to go to is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Familiar verse to most of us. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, who's begun the good work in you? God. When did he begin the good work in you? The moment you trusted Christ, when you were born again, regenerated. And he who began that good work in you will complete it until when? The day of the Lord? Is that what your Bible says? The day of Jesus Christ. Okay. And then down in verse 10, same chapter, says it again that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Very biblical term. Very biblical idea. Both those cases, the day of Christ, I think would be very logical to say, is when we go to be with him. And especially in the area of the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema is in view here because the whole issue of accountability and completing his work of uh, what he began in our salvation through sanctification and on to glorification. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, still in Philippians, it appears a third time. He says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So it's, it's the completion of our course, but it's the completion of the course of the whole church. Which we believe occurs at the rapture of the church. When we put together 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, and these other passages. There are some other references too. There's one more I'd like to look at, and that's in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord. Is that what it says? In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul taught that everywhere he went, didn't he? When we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, we may be seeing, well, this is a whole new thing. Man, this is out of left field. What's he talking about? It must be, there must be a problem with the text. No, Paul's been teaching this everywhere he goes, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, in Philippi. 
So it doesn't surprise us if we're students of the scriptures. We know this. We should be even expecting it. If he's talking about the gathering of us to the Lord and he mentions the day of Christ, that's the day I would expect him to say when he's talking about a gathering to the Lord, wouldn't you? Given these other verses. Okay. And just to reemphasize something that came up in the discussion afterwards, but not everybody got the benefit of, the idea of the day, some, some people say, well, when I think of a day, I think, well, Monday's a day, you know, a 24-hour period, or maybe even an 8-hour period, you know, from 8 to 5 on Monday's a day. But the Bible uses day as a period of time, even a season, an age, or sometimes just a 24-hour period. And you don't know unless you study the context in how it's used in its particular case. So the day of Christ is momentary. In that case, it is something when the Lord calls us out, twinkling of an eye, that's pretty quick. That's not a process. But the day of the Lord, as we're moving into now, we see that one is something that is spread out over a process or period of time and we get that you say well, where do you get that you reading that in your eisegesis no we're getting that exegesis out of the bible we're seeing in the bible and we're pulling it out and developing our theology that way right we're not reading it in we're not inventing this we didn't invent it in 1830 nobody did i just i'm sorry i get angry about that but when, when liars go out there and distort people I love, that, I'm sorry that makes me angry. I hope it makes you angry. It makes Christ angry. Angry enough to put a whip together. So the day of the Lord. Well, let me ask you this. When you think the Old Testament, because I'll show you here in a minute, the day of the Lord is, is very much an Old Testament term. It, it, it appears a few times in the New Testament, but it's in reference to Old Testament passages that it appears in the New Testament. Where would you expect, let me just ask you this, where would you expect to find the first reference to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament? Well, you might say, start with the prophetic books. There are 17 of them, right? And you say, well, I know the oldest one, you know, we, we go back to, you know, the oldest, the first one, Jonah maybe, or, or Obadiah, going back. But would it be there? Or, well, good guess, but, you know, we're going through this particular book on Sunday nights in Henderson, Louisiana, next to the swamp, and it's been fascinating to study it in detail like this. But... It's the book that's the prince of the prophets. And, and, and it's put in the first of the 17 books. And, and that's exactly where I would expect to find it. Because all 16 books flow out from that first book. You know what I'm talking about? Isaiah. It's 66 chapters long. By far the longest of the prophetic books. Therefore the most detailed and the phrases that are used in Isaiah, the phrases you see in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Dan, I mean, it's almost like they don't even add anything new. They just take different sections out of Isaiah and expand it a little bit and explain it. And so, if, 
Well, go back to the book of Isaiah. And what chapter would you think, how far into the book of Isaiah do you think we have to go before we find the day of the Lord? Any ideas? Probably the 65th chapter, right? Because the day of the Lord is something that it happens near the end of time, and so it's probably near the end of the book. Is that what you think? where you think you'd find it? Try chapter 2. And in verse 11 and 12. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. What day, Isaiah? For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon. That's a metaphor for self-exalting people and that are high and lifted up upon all the oaks of Bashan. The oaks of Bashan were known for their majesty upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down. You want to know when the vaunted civilization of man is finally going to be dealt with by God? The day of the Lord is the answer. And the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Beloved, there's never been a day when the Lord alone has been exalted. Has there? Not like this. I can't wait for that day. I'd almost want to be on earth for that, you know. But I'm going to be in heaven because I'm going to be raptured because that's his plan. But I'm going to rejoice in heaven that it's happening here on earth. But it isn't going to happen on earth day one of the seven-year period, is it? And it's not going to happen on day two or day 30 or day 100. It's not going to happen until the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven year reign of Antichrist. You say, well, why is God going to drag it out that long? Because it's his purpose to do it that way. And he's God. And he doesn't have to check with you or me. He can do what he wants with his universe, can he? But I think it's another picture of the long-suffering heart of God because there are people that are going to turn to God, small numbers, pockets here and there, and most of them are going to be martyred for their faith during that seven years. But God's not wishing that any should perish, and so even the judgment, he's going to spread out over seven years so that there are people that can come to God and come to faith in Christ. Isn't that a God you can love? See, our God's not that harsh picture of God that's Satan. That's Satan. That's Lucifer. That's what he looks like. He wants to make you think and wants to make me think that God is harsh like that. But God's not like that, see. Satan's like that. And if he was your taskmaster for whatever period of time you were on this earth before you were saved, you know what he's like. We're not ignorant of his devices, Paul says. We know what he was like. Do you ever thought you want to go back to him since you've been saved? Do you ever thought, man, this, is, this Christian life just isn't what I thought it would be? I'd like to go back to that old one. 
You ever thought that? I hope not. I don't think I ever have for one hour, in all honesty, before the Lord, and he can strike me if he wants to. I never thought that because when you see the love of the Lord for us, there, there isn't anything else. There isn't anything else. And so he says, the haughtiness of man shall be, and then they, he quotes verse 19, is quoted in the book of Revelation, under the sixth seal they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Now in this context of the day of the Lord in verse 11 and 12, verse and, by the way, verse 11 and 12 aren't the first verses in this chapter. Did you notice that? That's why we numbered them, 11 and 12. The first verse of the chapter begins in verse 1. And, in, and we read the first few verses of the chapter, and we see a totally different picture, right? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Well, where's the Lord's house in Isaiah's day? Jerusalem, the hill of Zion which isn't even the highest hill in its region. The Mount of Olives next to it is higher than the Mount Zion. But something's getting ready to change. Even Mount Hermon is not going to be higher. It's, you know, up toward Lebanon there, and it's 9,200 feet, and Jerusalem's only 3,000 feet above sea level, but there are going to be some changes, see. The mountain of the Lord's house is going to be elevated above everything around it. Zechariah tells us that the valley right now, the Rift Valley, runs north-south. goes all the way down into Africa. I saw it down in Kenya, way down with Mount Kilimanjaro. It's still the Rift Valley. They call it Rift Valley Academy. It's right there on the side of the mountain. But the valley's going to change and run east-west instead of north-south. That's, that's a pretty major change, isn't it? If you take the Continental Divide running through the Rocky Mountains in our country and move it from north-south to east-west, do you think it would make a little change? People in Kansas wouldn't have all that bad weather all the time they get that comes down off the Rockies. And so we see then, shall be established on top and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Beloved, that's never happened. In the time of David and Solomon, it came somewhat close to this, but it wasn't all the nations then. Queen of Sheba and others came. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways from Jerusalem, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. That's never happened. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's the verse that's on the U.N. building in New York. The U.N. thinks they can get this. But they're not going to get it. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. World peace. Finally, shalom. From Jerusalem. From Yeshua. King Yeshua. Reigning in Jerusalem. Are you excited about that? Is that a whole helm idea to you? That's what I'm living for. What about you? I'm not living for this world and and this world's under judgment it's all going to perish it's going to burn up all your little idols the poor idols of the earth they're all going to get burned up right only the lord and his word and people are going to survive so 
I say that this is in the same context as what follows in verse 5. And on down to verse 11 and 12. The day of the Lord includes the seven-year tribulation period, which is judgment, and followed by this exaltation of Jerusalem, the word going from the kingdom, in other words. And this section in Isaiah 2 is so important to God that he repeats it almost word for word again in Micah chapter 4. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied in the region around Jerusalem. Micah in the southern kingdom in Judah also, but down in Shvelah, down toward Lachish, down toward Isaiah, down toward the area of the Philistines. That's where he prophesied. But he gives this same section almost word for word the same when God spends two different passages in his word on the same subject in that level he's trying to tell us it's important isn't he trying to tell us he's happy about it he can't wait okay well I want to look at a few other references to the day of the Lord is that okay you interested so going over to chapter 13 of Isaiah we move in chapter 13 the first 12 chapters form the first unit of the book, very powerful section dealing primarily with God's prophecies of judgment and restoration of his people Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom to a lesser extent. And then beginning chapter 13, we see prophecies against the nations. And we'll move with that all the way through chapter 23 and then chapter 24 to 27. The little apocalypse it's called because it's almost it's so linked to the book of Revelation. Did you know you had a miniature revelation in the book of Isaiah right in the middle of it? You see how important this book is? I told John MacArthur that, you know, back, I think I told you that. I'll repeat it again. Back in September, he finished all his commentaries on the New Testament, you know, and he was in Houston, not to see me, but because KHCB had their 50th anniversary banquet, and that's the station I was listening to when I got saved, and I've done work with them and so forth, and so I couldn't, I was so glad I was in town for it, and they had a pastor's breakfast, you know, and I made sure I called, made sure I could go, and they said I could go, and so I got there early, man, I want to get right the table right underneath the podium, and he sat at the table right next to us, and so he had told us about finishing the New Testament, and it took 40 years to do it, his entire ministry, from 1969 to 2009. And he was saying, well, I, you know, maybe I'm done with my course here. I don't know. You know, that's what he was telling us in the platform. Well, afterwards I said, you're not done, John. You need to do a commentary on Isaiah. Because Isaiah is so important. If you can get Isaiah, you will get all the other 16 prophetic books. Without understanding Isaiah, you'll struggle with the other 16, I think. Because the metaphorical language, the references, that they're all in Isaiah. And you would expect them to be if God puts it first in the prophetic record, even though chronologically it wasn't the first one written. But God chose to put it first. So in chapter 13, we read again, verse 6, Wail! For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Does that sound like judgment? It does, doesn't it? Therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will overhold them. 
They will, they will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. By the way, that does tell us something. A woman in childbirth tells us what about pain? It's a process. That should, that should trigger our minds right away. This is not going to be a point in time thing. That it's going to be over a period of time. You sisters, has there ever, has there ever been a sister that began her childbirth pains and had the child the, the same day? I've never heard of it happening. Has it ever happened, Linda? I don't know. I bet not. I mean, I'm just picking on Linda because I know she's an expert in these things. She studies these things. That's what I mean. No, that, and sometimes, you know, Mama told me that, that I came out, you know, practically before they got in the door of the hospital, and I, I guess I was ready to come. So it was short, you know, a few hours. But my older brother, it went on for, I think, nine hours. And man, you brothers, including me, we better hold you sisters in high regard for that. <laughs> I mean, that, it's our fault that you have that. I told you that on Sunday. According to the Bible, don't stone me. I'm just the piano player. It's our fault that the curse that you're experiencing in that has happened, and you sisters are gracious not to throw the pots and pans at us, but there'll be pain as a woman in childbirth, they'll be amazed that one of their faces will be like flames. They're, they're going to be staggered by what's happening. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. He will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven, their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be darkened. It's going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil. So what did we see in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians? The righteous judgment of God, right? And now he's finally going to punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Well, let me just, I'm just going to point out a couple other passages, we won't read them or look at them, but of course, Joel chapter 2, but it's, it's, all three chapters of Joel have a reference to the day of the Lord, and the battle of Armageddon particularly. In, in Amos chapter 5, that's the one I quoted last night, uh, book of Daniel chapter 9, but in, in Amos chapter 5, we read that uh, with the, the, uh, the degree of the suffering Verse 18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. How would you like to meet a bear? I wouldn't want to meet a lion or a bear. As though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light? Is it not very dark and so forth? Well, there, it, and it's in Obadiah, it's in Zechariah. You get the idea. And all of these passages in the Old Testament concerning the day of the Lord, where is the church? Ephesians chapter 3 tells us the church is a mystery, right? That's not revealed by God until the New Testament apostles and prophets. So therefore, is it not eisegesis to read into these passages the church? It is. It's not exegesis. It's eisegesis. It's, it's, it's mishandling the word of God to put the church in. 
And it's also mishandling the word of God to put the church in Matthew 24 and 25, too, in the Olivet Discourse. We talked about that some last night. And some want to go there to find the rapture. And the rapture's not there because the church is not there. And, all, and you say, well, how do you get that? Read it. Just read the first three verses and the subject matter is given. Just read it is all I say. The subject is Jerusalem, Israel, and the temple. Right? Where's the church in that? I, you can see I get a little emotional about it. But I don't apologize for getting emotional about the word of God and the truth of God. And, beloved, we need to get alert. The day we're living in, error is abounding. Our young people are reading it on the Internet like crazy. I was told about three different things the Ducanuses were telling me about one last night after the meeting, and then a few others I've heard about just in the last few weeks. I don't have Internet, so I don't get exposed to it, but the young people are on it all the time with their iPhones and iPads and all that. And we, you know, I don't fault you for that. That's the age you're living in. I missed that train, and I'm glad I did, but, but you're in it. So you want to be careful. You want to be alert. Don't be a sap for everything you read. Just because it's on the Internet, it's not true, right? Like the commercial says. Let's be alert. Quit ourselves as men. Be strong. Be courageous. The Lord is coming back soon. He wants us ready. He wants his bride ready. May the Lord help us to do that.